If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, an outlaw country superstar's insane origin. Chris today is an icon, and it really all starts off from this helicopter ride that he lands in Johnny Cash's front yard. Later, is the moonwalk really the king of pop's invention? So did he actually create the moonwalk? I don't know if I believe it. And finally, how John Lennon's fate is tied to the number nine. With his life path number, he may become a victim for a cause. One of the greatest songwriters around these days is a friend of mine named Chris Christopherson. An icon of country music. But I am living still. A prolific songwriter. And an A-list movie star. I don't want to do this to you anymore. Chris Christopherson is a renaissance man. Chris Christopherson was good looking. He was a Rhodes Scholar. But the call was to become a great songwriter. Songs for so many people, like me and Bobby McGee, which Janis Joplin recorded, and songs for Johnny Cash. But Christofferson's rise in the music industry starts at the bottom. The only job he could get was literally as a janitor. So how does this renaissance man go from sweeping floors to sweeping award shows? And why does it involve a helicopter? The helicopter maneuver changed Chris Christofferson's life forever. He thought if it took a crazy scheme like this, okay, I'll try a crazy scheme like this. And damn if he didn't do it. Before his storied career, Chris Christofferson is on a decidedly different path. Growing up as an army brat, son to an eventual US Air Force Major General. I don't think there was anyone that was more all-American than Chris Christofferson. He played football, he played rugby. He was such a big-time athlete that he appeared in Sports Illustrated in 1958 but also had this incredible mind, this incredible way with words. That guy was a Rhodes Scholar. In 1958, Christofferson earns a Rhodes Scholarship to study in England at the University of Oxford. It's here where he begins dabbling in songwriting. After graduation, pressure from his family pushes him to follow in his father's military footsteps. He had joined the military, he was in the army. Not only was he in the army, but he was a captain and he flew helicopters. He's a ranger in the US Army, and you know he's got this life set up for him. It's all laid out, but he doesn't want it. He wants to go someplace else. He wants to use his intellect and be a songwriter. Christofferson leaves his post and travels to Nashville. His goal, to work at Columbia Records. He devises a unique scheme to get his foot in the door. And an intelligent guy like he was, he goes, how do I get in the studio? Well, the only position available was to be a janitor. And so he got that job. Even the people in Nashville thought I was out of my gourd because they had met me as a captain. My wife had met me as a, a Rhodes Scholar, college graduate, and suddenly she's married to a janitor, you know? Although it's against studio rules, Chris the janitor takes every opportunity to slip demos to recording artists. When the janitor comes up to you with a song and hands it to you, nobody takes that seriously. Even in the 60s, it was like, is this guy nuts? I'm not listening to the janitor's song. 
One day at work, Chris manages to get his demo to Johnny Cash through his wife, June. But Johnny never listens to the tape. Chris says, hey, please give this to Johnny. So she gives it to Johnny. The story is, is that Johnny turns around and throws it in the lake because he gets so many demo tapes. I had given him every song I ever wrote through his wife, June, but he hadn't recorded any of them. The breakthrough finally comes in 1969, when Chris conceives a stunt using his skills as an Army-trained helicopter pilot that the country superstar can't ignore. Chris Christopherson was flying a helicopter for the National Guard and had a route that went between Nashville and Louisiana. And the caches lived outside of Nashville in a town called Hendersonville. He was going to land his helicopter in Johnny Cash's yard. And that would get his attention and get him to listen to these songs that he had written. Johnny Cash's story goes that Chris Christopherson landed a helicopter in front of his house and got out of the helicopter with like a beer in one hand and a demo tape in the other, like, listen to my music. Christopherson said, you need to hear this song. Johnny Cash heard it and said, oh my god. On that tape was the song Sunday Morning Coming Down. The song got cut, became a hit, and changed country music forever. Well, I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head. That didn't hurt. At this time, you have like this bubblegum pop music that's and going on. And the beer on. I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. Then here comes Chris Christopherson with this song where he talks about getting stoned and going through dirty shirts. I'm wishing, Lord, that I was stoned. And in my opinion, this is what kicked off outlaw country music. And Sunday morning coming down. Sunday Morning Coming Down goes on to become a number one hit and springboards Christopherson's songwriting career. Song of the year for 1970, Sunday Morning Coming Down, Chris Chris today is an icon, and it really all starts off from this helicopter ride that he lands in Johnny Cash's front yard. The tale becomes legendary and is retold in interviews and on stage over the years. Can you get that helicopter out of my yard now and sing a song with me, all right? But does this really happen, or is this simply part of country music lore? If the story's true, that is the coolest story ever. Coming up, we find the truth about the legendary helicopter incident. Christopherson told me it happened. I asked him about it, because I was like, come on, man, really? He goes, well, I wasn't drinking. And later, how the number nine influences John Lennon's life and death. If you have this number, you have a high moral destiny and purpose in life, but you have to make sacrifices. Nineteen sixty-nine, aspiring songwriter Chris Christopherson steals a military helicopter to hand deliver a demo to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash says when Chris came off of that helicopter that he had a beer in one hand and a demo tape in the other hand. But is that really what happened? He landed a helicopter in my yard and brought me a tape of Sunday morning coming down. 
So I thought, well, it's time to really give this guy a listen. Sunday Morning Coming Down becomes a number one hit for Cash and jumpstarts Christofferson's music career. But is this story true? Christofferson told me it happened. I asked him about it, because I was like, come on, man, really? He goes, well, I wasn't drinking. It's simply would be impossible before we get fly a helicopter with a bear. You got to use both hands and both feet. And I never would have done that. Chris Christopherson tells it a very different way. He says that Johnny wasn't home when he actually landed the helicopter, that he gave the demo to the gatekeeper. So that's Chris's side of the story. Johnny's is a lot more colorful. And there's one more colorful detail of Johnny Cash's version of the story, the song on the demo tape. Tape wasn't Sunday morning coming down. It was a thing called It No Longer Matters, which nobody ever cut. <laughs> when John said that, I never contradicted him because I kind of liked his creative memory. Johnny Cash, God love him, was you know known to embellish a story, but the plan worked because it did get Johnny Cash's attention. He did listen to these songs that Chris Christopherson was writing and set off the music career that he had dreamed of. Michael Jackson is the undisputed king of pop music. Not since Beatlemania has any superstar permeated our lives quite like Michael Jackson. His album sales still top the record books. His global tours, the stuff of legend. He really is a product of being a star. He's lived all his life as a star. But for all his fame, it's a dance move that most closely forms his identity. It sent Michael into the stratosphere. That was the moment where it was like, okay, this is gonna be one of the biggest pop stars of all time. He had a biography called Moonwalk. He had a concert film called Moonwalker. He became the Moonwalker. But did the Moonwalker actually invent his signature move? It's May 16th, 1983. Thank you, and welcome to a most star-studded evening. And Motown Records is celebrating its 25th anniversary. And some of the things that you're gonna see this evening are gonna blow your mind. Michael Jackson is a headliner of this massive event. Michael Jackson, before Motown 25, was just a Jackson 5 brother. It sort of introduced Michael Jackson as possibly the biggest star in the world at that time. Those were good songs. I... I like those songs a lot. It was going to be a fun night, sort of a nostalgia night. Especially, I like the new songs. But he made it something different. Jackson performs his number one smash hit, Billie Jean, the only non-Motown song of the night. But that becomes a secondary plot. He's also debuting a new dance move, something he calls the moonwalk. Three minutes into the performance, Jackson pivots to his left and forever changes both music and pop culture. It was bedlam. People were just going absolutely crazy. After he left the stage, one of the producers had to get on the microphone and said, ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. We have more show to do. 
for a lot of Gen X kids, they would look to this night the same way boomer kids look to when the Beatles first performed on Ed Sullivan show. Immediately after, the question becomes where and how does MJ learn this move? His brother Jermaine says, you know, Michael's the guy, he's the one who invented the moonwalk, end of story. Michael didn't know what he was gonna do on Billie Jean. And everything that you saw him do, he made it up on the spot. Did he actually create the moonwalk? I don't know if I believe it. There were a ton of people who claimed to have invented the moonwalk as it's come to be known. We're very, very honored because we've got Jeffrey from the group Shalamos come all the way from the States to show us something rather special. Cop a load of this. In 1982, a year before Motown 25, former solid gold dancer Jeffrey Daniel debuts his move, which he calls the backslide. It wasn't called the moonwalk, but he had that sliding backwards move. And you had reports that Michael had recruited Jeffrey Daniel. Teach me how to do this. Other people tell different stories, though. Bobby Brown has this delusion that somehow he taught Michael Jackson the moonwalk. Bobby Brown is a great dancer, but I don't know. I, I, I feel like I can't say that's 100% true. Coming up, does Bobby Brown own the patent on the moonwalk? Are you insinuating that you taught Michael Jackson how to moonwalk? And later, does the number nine somehow lead to John Lennon's death? He epitomized the number nine, almost incontrovertibly so. By the mid-80s, Michael Jackson is the most dominant pop star on the planet. And his signature dance move, the moonwalk, becomes his calling card. Michael really didn't invent the moonwalk, he perfected it. By the time Jackson introduces the moonwalk to the mainstream, it's already had its debut, most notably from solid gold dancer Jeffrey Daniel. Jeffrey Daniel, to this day, will argue that he created the moonwalk. I taught Michael the backslide, which Michael named the moonwalk. But another star, not Daniel, claims he's MJ's inspiration. Are you insinuating that you taught Michael Jackson how to moonwalk? I'm not insinuating. I'm letting you know that this is what happened. This is, this is how the moonwalk was formed. I taught him how to do it. You've barely seen Bobby do it himself, so it's kind of hard to see Bobby Brown teaching Michael Jackson the moonwalk. Turns out it's neither Bobby nor Shalimar nor the king of pop himself. No, the origin story of the backsliding dance move goes back well before the king of pop was even born. Cab Calloway was the, the very flashy, influential band leader from the 1930s era. When Cab Calloway made that dance move, to everyone else, it was known as the buzz at that time. So the moonwalk came from the buzz. The moonwalk, the buzz, the backslide. It seems like everyone has a claim, including the godfather of soul. James Brown is probably the second most famous moonwalker. Wasn't known as the moonwalk at the time, 
but you know, his dance moves were indescribably influential on Michael Jackson. Papa got a brand new bag. It doesn't end with Brown. Dancer Bill Bailey in 1943, Julie Garland in 44, even Dick Van Dyke, all have legitimate rights to the move. So who is the rightful owner? Who gets credit for the moonwalk? It's one of those things that we'll never really know. I think in the public consciousness, it's just always gonna be connected to Michael. It wasn't the moonwalk before Michael made it the moonwalk. He perfected it, elevated it, at the end of the day, the king of pop deserves props. Michael Jackson was the moonwalker. This is the reason we're still talking about it today. December 1980, New York City. John Lennon, who was 40, was shot and killed last night outside his luxury apartment in New York. John Lennon is shockingly gunned down, leaving the world searching for answers. When you have somebody like John Lennon, who dies relatively young. Of course, people start finding patterns. Number nine, number nine. Number nine plays a role in John Lennon's life up until his death. Number nine seems to crop up in my life, so that's my number. Is John's death foretold by numerology and the number nine? Nine represents people who have integrity and they want to do something to change the world. With his life path number, he may become a victim for a cause. Lennon's link to the number goes back to his childhood and the birth of the Beatles. John was born on October 9th in Liverpool, England. That address that he grew up on, which was 9 Newcastle. Their first Quarrymen audition was on the 9th. Their first appearance in the Cavern Club was on the 9th. A lot of things happen to occur on the 9th. Perhaps most importantly, February 9th in 1964 is the day the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan's TV show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! 82 things can happen. Oh, that's a coincidence. But if a third thing happens, then it must mean that the universe is acting in some kind of coordinated way. He was very much convinced that the number nine was important in his life, but it didn't occur to him until after he had met the Maharishi. In 1968, the Beatles search for enlightenment in India, and John studies the ancient art of numerology. Numerology is based on the concept that there's a reason why numbers show up in your life. Nine is associated with people who are humanitarians and they want to do something to change the world and make it a better place in their own way. John returns from India with a new appreciation of the number that's attached to his life. And he tries to harness the power of numerology in his music. The number nine was a recurring motif in John Lennon's life. He was pretty convinced of that. There's no mistaking John's fascination with the number nine. His single called Number Nine Dream from his ninth solo album only went up to number nine in the top 10 on the charts. So it's all nines. That's pretty freaky, really, if you think about it. Coming up, is John Lennon's fate foreshadowed by this number? It could have been a blessing and a curse, the number for him. John Lennon's entire life seems to be guided by the number nine. His birth, his band's birth, his son's birth, all on the ninth. 
It becomes his spiritual advisor, and for most of his life, a lucky charm, but a charm with a catch. If you have this number, you have a high moral destiny and purpose in life, but you have to make sacrifices. The numerology of the number nine, there are, of course, a lot of very positive things, but sadly, it could have been a blessing and a curse, the number for him. Lennon was shot and killed at about 11 o'clock last night outside his apartment building. John was shot, it was on December 8th, a few minutes before 11 p.m., which means that in Liverpool, England, it was December 9th. That adds a very eerie symmetry to it. So does Lennon himself realize the impact of the number? Look no further than his most powerful solo hit. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine, released on September the 9th. A lot of great spiritual leaders will have the number nine prominent in their life because they're representing the whole and not just themselves. And Lenin changed the world in his way. I think he was all about peace, and I think that's what he cared about most. He wanted the world to be a better place. He epitomized the number nine, almost incontrovertibly so. A stolen helicopter and the creation of a legend a debate over one of the world's most famous dance moves, and a life defined by the number nine. They're all part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review, and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.